Hello and welcome to the Australian Chamber Orchestra podcast. I'm Francis Merson and that music we're hearing right now is from the third movement of Schubert's String Quintet in C Major, which is the centerpiece of the latest concert series by the Australian Chamber Orchestra, entitled, you guessed it, Schubert's Quintet. Alongside it, we have a quintet by Schubert's most beloved composer and someone you may also have heard of, Ludwig van Beethoven, his string quintet in C minor. Just two works by two of the great titans of the 19th century. They both lived and worked in Vienna and also died around the same time, and so you might expect them to have been bosom buddies or perhaps even bitter rivals. But the history of their relationship is actually a bit more complex than that. And on this podcast, we're going to try and shed some light on their possible interactions, as well as explore how their various successes and tragedies played out in these two wonderful pieces of music. And we're going to start with the granddaddy of them all, Ludwig van Beethoven. Beethoven's string quintet in C minor was actually originally not a string quintet at all. The work we know of today is in fact a transcription of one of Beethoven's very first published works, his Opus 1, a set of piano trios that he wrote as a young renegade who had just moved to Vienna. And as soon as he arrived in the imperial capital, this rebellious young musician gained a reputation for being what might today be called a disruptor. He had a desire to reject orthodoxy and thumb his nose at the established order. And this was a tendency that had emerged really in his earliest years. And so where had Beethoven come from? Well, he was born in 1770 in Bonn, uh, which was then part of the Holy Roman Empire and now is part of Germany. Bonn was a bit of a backwater, culturally speaking, and today is still probably best known for being the birthplace of Beethoven. Apologies to any listeners from Bonn in the audience. Uh, Beethoven's father was a tenor at the court of the Prince Archbishop Elector, and he gave keyboard and violin lessons on the side, including to his son Ludwig. Beethoven's father was a violent alcoholic, and also a rather extreme version of what would today be called a tiger parent. He would beat Beethoven regularly in order to encourage him to practice and locked him in the cellar as punishment when he didn't. This didn't actually seem to work terribly well and young Ludwig continued to improvise on the violin and piano instead of doing serious music practice. This resulted in further beatings from his father who was convinced that such messing around with music would lead young Ludwig nowhere. How wrong he was. Now, there weren't really many good things about Beethoven's upbringing, but one good thing was that his family's position close to the court meant that Beethoven's talent was noticed early by the elector, who subsidised his studies. By the age of 13, the young Ludwig was financially independent from his father. Kids really grew up quickly in 18th century Germany. And so was also free of his rather brutal tutelage. And you can see in these events... Beethoven's character being forged. He realises that two things are needed to make the music he wanted. You have to rebel against the status quo and also be financially secure. Ludwig's father finally died when the young composer was 22, at which Beethoven the Elder's employer, the Elector, wrote sardonically to a friend, Our revenues from liquor have suffered a great loss in the death of Beethoven. This was actually an enormous relief to the family, as it gave the young Beethoven license to leave for Vienna, where he would remain for the rest of his life. He arrived in Vienna in 1792, 
and from the outset refused to do what penniless young artists are supposed to do in the big city, which is to suck up to the aristocracy. The French Revolution was in full swing, and Beethoven considered himself a child of the Enlightenment. He was a devotee of Frederick Schiller, the poet of the Revolution. In Bonn, he had attended lectures at the university by a certain Eugolius Schneider, who would later find fame as public prosecutor for the Revolutionary Tribunal in Strasbourg, where he would gleefully send hundreds of aristocrats to the guillotine. Beethoven very soon established a reputation as a brilliant piano virtuoso and improviser in the salons of Vienna, but he refused to follow the rules of polite society. An acquaintance of his wrote the following reminiscence. While Haydn and Salieri, both carefully dressed in the old-fashioned way with wig, shoes and silk stockings, Beethoven would come in the informal fashion of the other side of the Rhine, almost badly dressed. He behaved without manners, in both gesture and demeanour, he was very haughty. I myself saw the mother of Princess Lichnowsky go down on her knees to him as he lolled on the sofa, begging him to play something, but Beethoven did not. The Lichnowsky family was actually Beethoven's first patrons, and he would dedicate his Opus 1 piano trios to Prince Lichnowsky. However, even here, Beethoven was keen to remind everyone where he stood. As he wrote to his aristocratic sponsor, Prince, what you are, you are by circumstance and birth. What I am, I am through myself. There are and always will be thousands of princes, but there is only one Beethoven. One thing that allowed Beethoven to be at least somewhat disdainful of the aristocracy was a new way for generating wealth which was emerging at the time. Music publishing at the end of the 18th century was exploding alongside the rise of the new middle class who needed music to play around the fireside. Beethoven shrewdly waited until he'd become a household name as a musician, and people were really clamouring for his first compositions before publishing his first works, the three piano trios, his Opus 1. And it is the third piano trio in C minor that is of a special interest to us, as it is this work that was transcribed to become the string quintet in C minor on the program. As befitting a young revolutionary, it's a work of startling explosive vehemence. Compared with the piano trios of Haydn or Mozart, which were more suited to the sphere of domestic music making, these are virtually symphonies for three instruments, with the C minor trio of 1795 standing out as unusually forceful and expressive. From the very outset, the work sets foot into the stormy, turbulent world that Beethoven would later explore in such works as the Pathétique Sonata and the Fifth Symphony. Only seven notes into the first movement, the first theme suddenly moves up a semitone. And these unexpected semitone shifts are found throughout the work. They introduce instability and tension. It's as though Beethoven, the young revolutionary, is wanting you to feel the ground shifting beneath your feet. And here's the shift. Beethoven was a constant innovator, and he rarely looked back to his previous compositions. 
But the string quintet arrangement of the piano trio comes some 20 years after the original. And so why did he decide to rearrange it? Well, it turns out actually he didn't. An existing arrangement by an amateur musician named Joseph Kaufman was brought to Beethoven's attention, and it was a bit of a botched job. Beethoven, true to form, was incensed by this inadequate transcription, but at the same time recognised that the idea did have some merit. And so Beethoven sat down and polished off a new transcription himself, and peremptorily burnt Kaufman's version. In Beethoven's own words, he elevated it from abject wretchedness to moderate respectability, while the original score has been solemnly sacrificed as a burnt offering to the gods of the underworld. In this string quintet, Beethoven adds an extra viola to the usual quartet combo of two violins, a viola and a cello. Now this makes sense because the piano in the original trio gives a lot of voices at once, you know, one voice for each finger potentially, and so you need an extra instrument to pick up the slack. And so we wind up with two versions of the same piece, which might be interesting to compare. So let's have a listen to the opening of the second movement, a slow theme and variations movement, as it stands first in the piano trio version, where the melody is carried by the piano alone, and then we'll listen to the string quintet version, where the parts are divided up between five string instruments. Here's the string quintet version of the same passage. third movement, a mixture of minuet and scherzo, reverts to the explosive C minor character of the opening movement. However, Beethoven was also not above occasionally giving the Viennese public exactly what they wanted. And here he includes a charming Lendler melody in the trio central section. But what is a Lendler exactly? Well, it's a popular partner dance in 18th century Europe. Everyone's doing it. And it's basically like a slower version of the waltz also in 3-4 time, with three beats to the bar. So a kind of 1-2-3, 1-2-3, 1-2-3 time. And it has slightly more rustic, countrified associations than the waltz. Today, we're probably most familiar with Lendlers as they come up in the, in the music of Beethoven and Schubert. But what did an actual folk music Lendler sound like? Well, a little bit something like this. Now 
And so that's what an authentic Lendler sounds like played on folk instruments. But what about in Beethoven's hands? Well, as you'll hear, his treatment is much more elaborate, with a flurry of arpeggios from the violin accompanying the melody. In the final movement, we see the extremes of mood that are really typical of the mercurial, headstrong, young Beethoven. And to wrap up the piece, he does the same trick as in the first movement, of suddenly modulating by a semitone, so you don't quite know where you are. Just as the work seems like it's about to finish up in C minor, we suddenly slip down a half tone to a totally unrelated key, that of B minor. And what it feels like is the ground suddenly collapses beneath you. Let's have a listen. I think you'll hear what I mean. So here we're in C minor, and here we slide down to B minor. The piano trio in C minor was an instant success for Beethoven. With his very first publication, his Opus One, he was able to live off the proceeds for nearly a year. And this is kind of a landmark moment, not only in Beethoven's life, but also in the history of music, as Beethoven was on his way to becoming the first truly independent composer in history. Someone who could make a living from publications, concerts and the support of patrons without ever having any permanent employment or role at court, or really having to do anyone's bidding. As he wrote to a friend at the turn of the century, I am offered more commissions than I am able to carry out. I no longer come to an arrangement with people. I state my price and they pay. One person who would have longed to be able to make this kind of statement is Franz Schubert. And for any musician growing up in the early years of the 19th century in Vienna, Beethoven was a godlike figure. Not only was his music brilliant, but he was entirely his own man, able to write music on his own terms. And while Schubert would decide very early on in life to devote himself wholeheartedly to composition, he would not know even a fraction of the success awarded to Ludwig van. Schubert, who was born in 1797, five years after Beethoven's arrival in Vienna, was perhaps an even more astonishing natural talent than Beethoven. His first teacher, the organist of the local church, would often tell Schubert's father, with tears in his eyes, that he had never seen such a pupil. Apparently, he did not even give the young Schubert any real instruction, as his pupil would somehow miraculously know anything he was being taught. Word of this incredible talent got around and attracted the attention of none other than Antonio Salieri. If you've seen the Milos Forman film Amadeus, Salieri, he's the bad guy. 
Well, it turns out Salieri also had a good side. He got Schubert a choir scholarship at the Vienna Stadtkonvikt, which was the imperial seminary, and also began to train him in music theory and composition. Schubert was a brilliant student and was on the brink of what would probably have been an equally successful university career. But he decided to give it all up to dedicate himself entirely to music. His hero Beethoven had proven that it could be done, and Schubert was equally convinced of his own talent. However, Schubert was from an even more humble background than Beethoven. His father was a schoolteacher and son of a peasant. His mother had been a maid before her marriage. Schubert was born in a one-room apartment above a pub, and he was so poor when he left high school that he couldn't even afford manuscript paper on which to write his compositions. He had to sell all his books in order to buy a ticket for the first performance of the revised version of Beethoven's opera, Bedelio, in 1814. Unlike Beethoven, Schubert was not a brilliant pianist, and he wasn't someone whose revolutionary demeanor elicited gasps of delight in the salons of Vienna. He was painfully shy, softly spoken, and only a little more than five feet tall. He was affectionately nicknamed Schwammel by his friends, or the Little Mushroom. And time and time again, this little mushroom was turned down for serious post as a musician and was unable to find widespread recognition as a serious composer, although some of his leader, his songs, were quite popular. Schubert's work was acclaimed among a close circle of friends and musicians who would organize musical evenings dedicated to his music, which they would call Schubertiade. And Beethoven would certainly have been aware of Schubert, Schubert's first substantial instrumental composition, his variations on a French theme for piano duet, bore a dedication to Beethoven from his worshipper and admirer, Franz Schubert. Beethoven and Schubert also would have bumped into each other in musical circles. However, amazingly, there is no historical record of their ever having had so much as a conversation. And it seems that Beethoven really discovered Schubert's work only just before his death. While on his deathbed, leafing through a portfolio of Schubert's songs, Beethoven is said to have exclaimed, Truly, in this Schubert there dwells a divine spark. And when Beethoven died in 1827, Schubert was a pallbearer at his funeral, which speaks more to Schubert's position in the musical life of Vienna than to any real relationship. And interestingly, the last music that Beethoven ever wrote were 26 bars of a string quintet in C major. And so it is perhaps no coincidence that Schubert decided to compose a piece for the same number of instruments in the same key. In fact, after Beethoven's death in 1827, there was an explosion of creativity on Schubert's part. Beethoven's death had created the space in Vienna for a composer to step into, and Schubert was determined to be that composer. He even scheduled a concert of his own works on the first anniversary of Beethoven's death on March 26, 1828, as if to suggest a symbolic passing of the torch. His string quintet in C major in every way speaks of these grand ambitions. His ambitions, unfortunately, were short-lived, as Schubert would be dead within two months of the work's completion. But if you're going to leave a final legacy, you could do a lot worse than the string quintet in C major. It's a masterwork of enormous dimensions that takes almost an hour to perform and was perhaps the most ambitious piece of chamber music ever written at the time. Unlike, unlike Beethoven's quintet, Schubert's is scored for an extra cello 
rather than an extra viola, and Schubert often uses the first cello as another lyrical voice carrying the melody, while maintaining the foundation of a bass line with the second cello. The work opens with an extremely expansive movement, an allegro that takes more than one-third of the total length of the piece, and here Schubert really exploits the warm sound of the combined cellos, most memorably in the second theme of the opening movement, where they combine in a mesmerizingly beautiful duet in the upper register of the instrument, while the role of the bass is given to the viola playing pizzicato. And here Schubert capitalizes on the similarity between the sound of the cello and the sound of the human voice, and you can almost hear two singers standing center stage, their voices intertwining in divine harmony. As stunning as this music is, Schubert was really saving his most lyrical moments for the radiantly serene Adagio second movement, which is really one of the most sublime Adagios in all of music. And you'll have to excuse the, the superlatives here. This is music of an almost kind of metaphysical beauty. And I'm not alone in thinking this. Uh, Thomas Mann asked for it to be played on his deathbed, while the pianist Arthur Rubinstein, who knew a thing or two about music, wanted it to be played at his funeral. It evolves with a slow-moving, seemingly endless melody, punctuated by the second cello playing a pizzicato bass line, while the first violin plays a series of hauntingly expressive short phrases, almost as though trying endlessly in vain to give voice to something ineffable. Doesn't it make you just want to keep listening to this music forever? And so it's no wonder, perhaps, that given the proximity of the completion of this quintet to Schubert's death and the heavenly nature of the music itself, that people have regarded the quintet as something akin to Schubert's last will and testament, that he intended this to be his final statement in music. Adding to the case is the third scherzo movement, which contains a very somber central section with the instruments all playing on their lowest string, giving the impression of a funeral procession. 
And so, was this Schubert's swan song? Well, it's a gratifying idea. The divinely gifted Schubert had decided to pour his last drops of genius into a final masterwork before going to join the angels. However, the reality was not quite so romantic. As many people know, Schubert had contracted syphilis several years earlier and experienced some symptoms, but he had no reason to believe he was at immediate risk of dying. In fact, right up until his death in November 1828, he seemed to be in pretty decent health. In September, along with the string quintet, Schubert also completed the last three piano sonatas in a single month and played them all at a musical party on September 27th, a daunting challenge for anybody, let alone a man on the verge of death. His final illness actually dates from October 31, when he became sick not with syphilis, but after eating fish at a tavern with some friends. And so the most plausible theory of Schubert's death is that he actually died of abdominal typhus, which runs its course in just a few weeks and is brought about by consuming food contaminated with a variety of salmonella. Still, a few days after the contamination, on November the 4th, he managed to walk a mile with a friend of his to take the first of a course of lessons in formal counterpoint. And so it seems that Schubert, while writing the quintet, was a young man who reflected on death, which was particularly common in the Romantic period, but he had no clue that he was going to die. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to die in a few weeks, I probably wouldn't start taking lessons in formal counterpoint. And so it seems that the grandeur of the string quintet comes not so much from Schubert's concern with his own mortality as a man, but with his immortality as a composer. However, it is certainly true that despite its wonderfully lyrical moments, the whole work is far from serene. Pianist Alfred Brendel has observed that it contains what he calls a very dark core. The opening movement in C major, which is traditionally a key of joyous affirmation, is overshadowed by a raft of diminished harmonies and minor keyed inflections. Schubert once famously asked a friend, do you know of any happy music? I don't. And even the trance-like stillness of the adagio is shattered by its tumultuous central section. And the finale of the work in the fourth movement seems to make a valiant attempt to be cheerful, but the final perfect cadence, returning to the home key of C major, is disrupted with a dissonant D-flat, which is played forte by all the instruments and left hanging in the air, leaving a cloud of ambiguity over the entire work. And so, for all the apparent high spirits of the quintet, the work ends with a sudden shadow falling across its surface. And this is certainly chilling, given that within two months of the work's completion, Schubert was dead, before reaching his 32nd birthday. And it's hard to imagine that Schubert actually didn't have time to hear his string quintet performed. So in attending a concert of the work, we're enjoying a privilege that the composer himself didn't have. But as he lay dying, the work that he really wanted to hear was not one of his own hand, but that of his beloved Beethoven, the C-sharp minor quartet, Opus 131. And he also requested that after his death, 
he'd be buried in the village cemetery of Waring on the outskirts of Vienna. Why? So he could rest next to the grave of his hero, Ludwig van Beethoven. In his memorial inscription on Schubert's tombstone, the poet Franz Gilparzer famously wrote, The art of music has here buried a rich possession, but far fairer hopes. And indeed, Schubert, perhaps more than any other composer, exemplifies the life cut short too soon. And given the heights of genius that Schubert had scaled with his string quintet in C major, it's hard not to wonder what he could have achieved given just one more miraculous year and what wonderful music we might have known. The Australian Chamber Orchestra's Schubert's Quintet series runs from May 6th to May 17th in Wollongong, Sydney, Canberra and Melbourne. For more details, visit aco.com.au. I'm Francis Merson. Thanks for listening.